This is Time and Other Thieves, Reflections and Conversations on the Nature of Existence. This episode originally aired in radio format on October 27th, 2022. I'm Sarah B., and today I'm going to revisit a book I've already talked about on this program in an episode that originally aired on November 18th, 2021. The book in question is Marion Woodman's Addiction to Perfection, first published in 1982. I've decided to do a sequel episode for two reasons. The first and most important reason is that the previous installment I did on Addiction to Perfection is far and away the most popular Time and Other Thieves episode I've made. That's according to the Buzzsprout stats for the podcast version of this show. So I'm doing a follow-up episode because I'm just plain curious to see if it will be comparably popular, but also because it seems like people are craving insight around the notion of perfection, why we're addicted to it, and how we might stop being addicted. The second reason I'm revisiting Woodman's book is because I really only read half of it in making the first episode. Mind you, I had read the entire thing a few years prior, but for the making of that first episode, I only had time to reread half of it. So today I will reflect on the second half of the book, which consists of four chapters. Those chapters, numbered 5 through 8, are titled Ascent to the Goddess, The Myth of Miz, Rape and the Demon Lover, and The Ravished Bride. As I said in the first episode I did on Addiction to Perfection, which you can stream on various podcast platforms, I am definitely working outside of my comfort zone when it comes to myth, gods, goddesses, demons, and archetypes, which are all concepts that Woodman wields effortlessly. She was a Jungian analyst, after all. I myself have never been especially interested in myth or archetype, but as I said in that first episode, there's enough other stuff in this book that does resonate with my natural interests, and that is the material I'll be focusing on. Here at the start, though, I should say for the benefit of listeners who didn't hear the first episode or have never read Addiction to Perfection, that it's largely about the masculine and feminine principles, or what Carl Jung called the animus and anima, and how those principles need to be balanced in order for people as individuals and a society to thrive, to get the most out of life, to essentially be happy. In broad terms, the masculine is active, while the feminine is passive. The masculine is rational, while the feminine is irrational, which is not to say crazy, but emotional, which is not to say hysterical, but feelings-based. The masculine penetrates, and the feminine receives. The masculine strives, fights against the current. The feminine goes with the flow. The masculine is regimented, routinized, and scheduled. The feminine is spontaneous and open to change. Woodman's argument, which I agree with, is that the masculine principle, or more specifically the unconscious masculine principle, plays a much larger role in the modern human life than the feminine principle does. Ideally, these principles would have equal sway in our psyches and in our dealings with the material world, and instead of being largely unconscious, they would be illuminated by the light of conscious awareness. 
In Chapter 5, Ascent to the Goddess, Woodman quotes Swiss Jungian psychologist and scholar Marie-Louise von Franz, who said, Emotion is the carrier of consciousness. This assertion deserves close attention. At first, it struck me as counterintuitive, because emotions often seem to come from our most mysterious depths, don't they? I'm sure most of us have had the experience of being baffled by our own emotion. I don't know why I'm crying right now, we might have said on more than one occasion, or I don't know why I got so mad. This lack of understanding our own emotions suggests that they originate in an unconscious place, and I think that's true. But von Franz isn't saying that emotions are consciousness. She's saying that they are the carriers of consciousness. Inexplicable emotion is a clue that we'd all be well advised to follow, by which I mean be curious about. It says, this exists inside of you. Don't you think you should know it better? And in trying to know it better, we become more conscious. And that means we gradually come to have more control over ourselves, but not in an overly masculine way, not in a way that requires a bunch of stressful striving to keep things under control. It just happens naturally. We stop being slaves to our own unconscious energies. With compassionate, consistent inquiry, we become aware of what we feel as we feel it, and we have a good sense as to why that feeling is there. Every feeling has a good reason for being there, I can assure you that. And therefore, they should never be ignored. Which isn't to say that they should be obeyed, per se. To ignore fear, for instance, is much different than acknowledging it and then doing the scary thing anyway. Vastly different forces would be at play in such a scenario, and as a result, vastly different behaviors would manifest. Woodman did a lot of analytical work with women suffering from a whole spectrum of eating disorders. Self-starving anorectics on one end, obese compulsive bingers on the other. So the body played a huge role in her approach to psychotherapy, as well as in her scholarly pursuits. In Addiction to Perfection, she says, The woman's task is to persevere with the body until she recognizes it is not dross but alloy. In case you're not familiar with the word dross, it means rubbish or something that's regarded as worthless. And the definition of alloy is a metal made by combining two or more metallic elements, especially to give greater strength or resistance to corrosion. How is the body an alloy exactly? Well, for one, according to Woodman, it's, quote, the unconscious in its most immediate and continuous form. I'm honestly not sure how or why that's the case, but I can at least appreciate that most bodily processes happen outside of our conscious awareness. And if we're not careful, we can allow processes that are accessible to conscious awareness fall out of our conscious awareness. Take walking, for instance. Most of us, unless we're toddlers or injured or otherwise physically challenged, don't need to think about walking much, if at all. Same goes for standing and sitting, and plenty of other ways of moving and positioning the body. I recall how I eventually no longer had to think about knitting once I'd practiced enough. My hands just knew what to do. Muscle memory. 
But just because we don't have to think about how we walk, stand, sit, knit, or whatever it might be, that doesn't mean we shouldn't think about it, nor should we think about it all the time. But I believe it's a deeply valuable practice to regularly observe how we move or how we don't move and thereby bring some consciousness into those activities. Cooking is a great activity around which to practice such consciousness. Edward S.B. Brown talks about this in his book, No Recipe, Cooking as Spiritual Practice, which I explored in an episode back in June. He says, we too often abandon our bodies in a standing position while cooking. We are not consciously standing. Whenever I realize that I've abandoned my body in this way, the first thing I do is straighten my spine and draw my shoulder blades gently down my back. I distribute my weight evenly across both feet. I notice how I'm breathing. And because I've straightened up through my center channel, the breath flows more smoothly. It might not sound like much, but it's really quite something, the difference it makes to really inhabit one's body, to not abandon it. This is where yoga is such a valuable practice too, because you get to bring the light of your awareness to all kinds of movements and positions, and all along you're staying with the breath. I know that yoga isn't for everyone, but I also think that it really could be for everyone, if everyone changed their conception of what yoga is or has to be. It can simply be reaching your arms overhead on an inhale and lowering them at the same rate of your exhale. It can be lying on the floor and rolling around in whatever ways feel good and interesting. It can especially just be lying on the floor in Shavasana, in total surrender. Marion Woodman says that the way to recognize the body not as dross but alloy is, quote, to allow the body to play to give it space and allow it to make whatever movements it wants to make. Yoga provides just such an opportunity for play. If you go to a public class or follow a video at home, you need not follow the teacher's instructions to a T. You can use their prompts as suggestions, as a framework and an anchor for a practice that feels good for you on that particular day. I recently hurt myself in a roller skating fall and my yoga practice looked quite different in the week or two following that injury. And now, over a month after the fact, it still hasn't gone back to the way it was. Not exactly. And it might never go back. And that's okay because things happen to bodies on top of the fact of aging, which has subtly, over the years, made my yoga practice look and feel a little different every day. To accept limitations with compassion is feminine. To keep forcing the body into the same positions day after day because you prefer it never change is masculine. Which isn't to say I've been letting my pain dictate my every move. In recovering from my fall, I've had to do things that hurt because I know that that's the only way to move the pain through to prevent it from becoming chronic. As a result, I have felt on much more intimate terms with my body than ever before in my life. Another reason to move the body mindfully on a regular basis, to go deeper with sensation and see what it has to teach us, is that it has a way of unlocking emotions that might otherwise always be barricaded off. Woodman says, Our bodies have become so rigid and so plugged with unexpressed emotion that there is no room in them for creativity. And I don't think she's just talking about negative emotions. For me, joy is a feeling that yoga has helped me experience and express more fully. 
I've been amazed over the years at how strong the impulse can be to tamp that joy down when I sense it coming up. Yoga has taught me how to smile instead, to breathe more deeply, to close my eyes and really feel it, and be grateful. Chapter 6 of the book, titled The Myth of Ms., Woodman provides a twofold definition of femininity. First, she says that femininity is taking responsibility for our bodies so that the body becomes the tangible expression of the spirit within. For those of us who have lived life in the head, this is a long, difficult, and agonizing process because in attempting to release our muscles, we also release pent-up fear and rage and grief that has been buried there, probably since or before birth. Femininity is also, she says, taking responsibility for who I am, not what I do, not how I seem to be, not what I accomplish. Questions guiding this responsibility-taking include, what are my values? What are my needs? Am I true to myself or do I betray myself? What are my feelings? Am I capable of love? Am I true to my love? And I'm sure many of us would need to ask what it even means to love. I'm partial to Anthony DeMello's definition, which you might recall from the very first episode of Time and Other Thieves, which focused on his book, Awareness. In that book, DeMello defines love as seeing something for what it really is, not what we imagine it to be, and giving it the response it deserves. Can you see yourself for what you really are and not what you imagine yourself to be or what you think you should be and give yourself the response you deserve? One way to more clearly see ourselves for who we really are is through the close observation of our dreams. Being a Jungian analyst and therefore very interested in unconscious phenomena, Woodman put a lot of emphasis on dream analysis in her work with therapy clients. In Addiction to Perfection, she says, If we watch our dreams long enough, themes are repeated, symbols reappear with variations. And if we contemplate these emerging patterns, gradually we begin to see some order in the chaos. Gradually we set up a dialogue between our ego and the being who is weaving the pattern. The dialogue between the ego and the self creates the soul. The word self in this passage has a capital S. That self with a capital S is who we really are. And as for themes being repeated in dreams, I mentioned in the first episode I did on Woodman that I have recurring dreams about overflowing toilets. Woodman says such dreams are evidence of too much striving for perfection in one's waking life. In the latter half of the book, she elaborates by saying toilet dreams of any kind, plugged toilets, overflowing toilets, toilets you can't get to, toilets in the middle of the living room, toilets with outrageous contents, indicate a body that's plugged with unexpressed emotion. Another theme that comes up in a lot of my dreams is that I'm trying very hard to get somewhere and I just can't get there. All kinds of things prevent me from reaching my destination. I lose my car or can't remember where it's parked. 
I lose my phone and therefore can't call or text anyone to tell them I'll be late, or I have my phone but can't figure out how to work it, I often end up crying in frustration and total exasperation. And I don't think any of these dreams have ever ended with me reaching my destination. I just wake up, relieved to be out of that incredibly stressful scenario. I also regularly dream about being in houses with lots of different rooms and hallways. I'm not terribly interested in analyzing these dreams, but I am intrigued by what Woodman calls the being, with a capital B, who is weaving the pattern. This concept begs the question, who is dreaming these scenes over and over again? My ego asks that question, and myself answers in more dreams. And through that conversation, according to Woodman, the soul is created. And I couldn't tell you what that means exactly. A few months ago, I watched the first season of the HBO series Julia about Julia Child in the period of her life when she was starting her public television cooking show and becoming more of a household name. In one episode, Child is at an awards banquet and winds up sitting beside feminist activist Betty Friedan, most well-known for her 1963 book, The Feminine Mystique. After some friendly chit-chat, Friedan, or the actress playing her, speaks her mind to Child, basically shaming her for hindering the feminist movement by encouraging women to stay in the kitchen. The terrible irony is that child herself had to get out of the kitchen in order to get her TV show on the air, and she had to contend with a lot of white men in suits to stake her claim on that air and work like a man to produce a new episode every week, all the while being a total neophyte at anything having to do with television. With her scrappy ingenuity, her courage, and her diligence, Child was a paragon of the feminism that Betty Friedan was championing, but the fictionalized version of Friedan couldn't see past the fact that Child was teaching women how to cook. Women weren't supposed to be cooking anymore. They were supposed to be out there doing jobs that had traditionally been filled by men. I have a feeling that Woodman would describe Friedan's likeness as one of, quote, countless women of the 60s and 70s who so deeply resented the patriarchy which had destroyed their femininity and that of their mothers that they lashed out against that patriarchy, but in doing so, they identified with the masculine side of their own psyches. That's the myth of the Miz, which is the title of Addiction to Perfection's fifth chapter. It's worth highlighting how Woodman says that the patriarchy destroyed the femininity of so many women. Some might argue that the patriarchy actually enhanced that femininity and that it actually destroyed the masculinity of those women by keeping them barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. But that argument would presuppose a cliched definition of femininity. I'll remind you that Woodman defines it as taking responsibility for our bodies and taking responsibility for who we are beyond any of the things we do. In insisting that women should do what men do, figures like the fictionalized version of Friedan imply that a woman's identity, or any person's identity, is more dependent on what they do than on what they value, what they need, what they feel, and how they can live truthfully and love well. 
Julia Child genuinely loved to cook, and through her educational TV show, she shared that love with the world. If Betty Friedan actually shamed her for that in real life, then shame on Betty Friedan. And regardless, shame on the fictionalized version of her, a so-called feminist with little respect for the feminine. And while I'm talking about TV shows, I may as well mention the series This Is Us, the first season of which I'm almost done watching. Given Marion Woodman's work with people in big bodies, I've been wondering what she might have to say about Kate Pearson, a main character on the show who struggled since childhood with her weight and is trying desperately as a 36-year-old to lose a significant amount of it. First, we see her dieting and going to weekly support groups akin to Overeaters Anonymous. Then she considers, and comes very close to having, gastric bypass surgery. Instead, she opts for an immersive weight loss experience, which she initially resists, calling it fat camp. I've yet to see if that retreat-type approach ends up making any significant difference, but if I had to guess, I'd say it probably won't. If I were in charge of Kate Pearson, I would encourage her to focus less on losing weight and more on singing. Kate loves to sing, and she's very good at it. And the one time I've seen her sing so far, she was brought totally alive by it. I think if she sang more, the weight would start to naturally fall off. This idea actually occurred to me while reading Chapter 7 of Addiction to Perfection, wherein Woodman quotes an obese client who says, My eating was my unconscious passion for life gone crazy. Maybe that's the case for Kate Pearson. Because she isn't pursuing her conscious life passion of singing, an unconscious passion takes over in the form of binging. It's perfectly poetic, I think, that gorging on food is a metaphor for gorging on life. For some people, based on their personality makeup and whatever they've experienced, a refusal to do the latter results in an inability to stop doing the former. Which isn't to say that anyone who regularly binge eats is not living life to the fullest. But I think it's safe to say that most of us aren't living our lives to the fullest, and overeating is one way we try to fill that void. We also do it with drugs, alcohol, sex, gambling, etc. And yes, I think that anyone who's locked in an unhealthy behavioral pattern of that sort should focus on their passion, be it singing, writing, hiking, mothering, what have you. If they don't know what they're passionate about, they should pursue any and everything they're slightly interested in. Pursue it like their life depends on it, because it does. While I agree with Woodman that we shouldn't equate what we do with who we really are, I also know that we must do things in the world if we're to understand who we are. It's just one of many paradoxes of the spiritual life. in the radio version of the show, I played a song called Grandma Say by Diane Cluck. If you've never heard it, I highly recommend checking it out. And I played that song because it's partly about cooking, and I'd been talking about Julia Child. It's also an appropriate song to play on a sequel episode about Marion Woodman's Addiction to Perfection, 
because Woodman talks a lot about archetypes, and I'd say the grandmother figure is an archetype in many cultures, if not all of them. What's more, the grandmother in Diane Cluck's song seems to epitomize what Woodman would call the conscious or divine feminine. She says, do the things you love and do them well, because you can't tell when things will go from good to worse. Don't live life like it's a curse. Include the ones you love. Tell them so. Make sure they know. Try best to keep them in your song, because no one's here for long. Cluck ends with the lines, If your heels dig in, shin dig em on out with your kith and kin. You'd best get out there and play. That's what your grandma'd say. I think Woodman would love these lines for how they epitomize a feminine approach to embracing life, what she would call getting ravished by it, as opposed to raped. When you find yourself resisting what is, or as Cluck says, if your heels dig in, then go have some fun, preferably with some people you care about. Instead of taking a masculine approach and trying to dig your heels out, shin dig them on out with your kith and kin. The masculine faces the problem head on, intent on solving it, and the feminine faces in another direction, knowing that if she feeds her soul with pleasurable activity, the problem will likely eventually solve itself. That's probably not a totally airtight Jungian interpretation of Grandma Say, but as I've said before, I find it fun to try and make song lyrics fit whatever subject matter I'm exploring here on Time and Other Thieves. I like pondering things in this way. I like the word ponder. It's rooted in the Latin pondus, meaning weight. So when we ponder something, we consider its weight. We weigh it. In chapter 7 of Addiction to Perfection, Woodman says that the task of the modern woman is to ponder the mystery of reality with a capital R. She says, It is an immediate and crucial task if our planet and our individual souls are to survive. But unlike the pondering I do on this show, the kind Woodman is referring to cannot be verbalized. It can only be experienced. She says it, quote, has to do with the sanctification of matter. Mysterious indeed. But this is another great example of the conscious feminine at work. She is fulfilled by pondering a mystery, whereas the masculine would demand on solving it, even when it cannot be solved. The masculine seeks answers, while the feminine prefers questions. Some might say that this is also the difference between religion and spirituality, but I'll talk more about that next week when I explore some of the ideas from the book, The Spirituality of Imperfection. I mentioned archetypes a minute ago. Woodman says, One reason people are suffering today to an almost intolerable degree is that their unmediated suffering has no conscious connection with its archetypal ground. End quote. In other words, quote, People do not realize that what they are suffering exists within creation itself, and that the gods and goddesses of religion and mythology have been there before. This notion ties into something else Whitman says in Addiction to Perfection, which is that in Western society, very little is sacred. Connections between man and nature, man and God are broken. We are without archetypal images, without sacred rituals, without a myth to hold our ego orientation together. End quote. 
I think ego orientation is another phrase for meaning-making. Our suffering becomes meaningless when this ego orientation becomes disoriented. And I love the idea that what we suffer exists within creation itself. If we can remember this, we can take our individual suffering less personally. It is simply a part of being a part of creation. One of Woodman's therapy clients put it beautifully in her journal. We are the translation of all the tunes the interstellar spaces ever sang. Some of those tunes are cacophonous, some are monotonous, some are unbearably glorious. To say that what we suffer exists within creation itself also strikes me as another way of saying that imperfection exists within creation itself. And imperfection really isn't a word that captures how deeply and fundamentally flawed creation is. We say things like, nobody's perfect, which implies, at least to me, that they can still be pretty close to perfect because we're still using perfect as the barometer, as something that something else isn't. But where humans are concerned, this is an apples-oranges scenario. Instead of saying that nobody's perfect, we should be saying that everyone is deeply, deeply flawed. The notion of perfection is totally irrelevant. And yet, everyone is also miraculous. As another of Woodman's clients reports, having called out desperately in a dream, despite our being, quote, this amazing collection of cells and organisms, we're screaming at each other about nothing. We take very little pleasure in our miraculousness. It seems we'd prefer to engage in conflict with one another. This is obviously the masculine power principle at work. And while its arguments can often employ excellent logic, logic is not the way to end a conflict with it. Woodman asserts that the most effective response to the masculine power principle in action is to say, You argue well, but you are without feelings. Those arguments have nothing to do with my essence. These are my feelings, even if you think I am making a fool of myself. These feelings are my truth. This could be a wife talking to her husband, or vice versa, depending on how masculine and feminine a given wife and husband are, or a wife and wife, or husband and husband. Or it could be a consciously feminine individual of any gender responding to society at large through art or some kind of activism. Woodman says... The feminine ego can be terrorized by the masculine invasion, and its only defense is its authentic feeling. As I said before playing the Diane Cluck song in the radio version... Woodman mentions another paradox in the eighth and final chapter of Addiction to Perfection. It also has to do with what she was just saying about ego orientation. We need story, myth, and ritual to help keep our egos properly oriented to reality. The paradox lies in the fact that we must first possess such ego strength in order to set it aside and totally surrender to reality. This willing surrender is what Woodman calls ravishment. Quote, ravishment can only be experienced when the ego is a sufficiently strong container to receive the dynamic energy bursting through. 
Paradoxically, that point can only be reached when the ego is strong enough to be vulnerable enough to surrender. An ego that's conditioned to be firm in its stance all the time, always the same, is actually quite brittle. As Ani DeFranco sings in her song, Buildings and Bridges, what doesn't bend breaks. An ego must instead be like the sail of a boat, a metaphor Woodman revisits in the final chapter of her book, which also appeared in the first chapter. Here in the eighth, which is titled The Ravished Bride, she writes, The position of the sail in one moment is not its position in the next, and if we try to hold on in the new moment to what was appropriate in the old, the boat turns over. As soon as we lock the sail or the rudder into position, we are in a complex. The ego-self axis is broken and we drown in unconsciousness. In striving for perfection, we lock ourselves into a position. An unwillingness to bend in the wind and relinquish some control over a given situation is not strength, nor is a refusal to be vulnerable. And there's the paradox within the paradox. In order to become strong, we must let ourselves be vulnerable. So how exactly do we do that? I can recommend one way, psychotherapy, and group psychotherapy in particular. I myself recently started attending weekly group therapy sessions, and I can attest that it's the perfect environment for risking more vulnerability. Given that a primary objective of group therapy is for members of the group to put as much of their experience as it's unfolding into words, I see it as a place to live more freely, censor myself less, and let myself cry in front of others. I've only been attending groups since late August, but I've already had the experience of my authentic feeling being my only defense. It felt liberating to know that I had no need to defend myself in more masculine ways, perhaps feigning indifference to what felt like an attack, and also in ways that might be coming from more of an unconscious feminine place, by apologizing to my perceived attacker. Instead, I just cried and said I felt ashamed. It doesn't get much truer than that. And I'm not saying that this is how everyone should respond when feeling attacked in any way. Most of the real world probably couldn't handle that kind of reaction. But in group therapy, it is absolutely a welcome response. And it's a place to practice being vulnerable in any number of other ways. Not so you can be that vulnerable in all of your real-life relationships necessarily, but maybe so you can be a bit more vulnerable when it's in service of a given relationship and in your being better known. People can't really love us if they don't really know us. The ego demands that we're always protected, and not just from visible known threats, but also from the threats we imagine, and many times the threats that can't actually hurt us, like the threat of others judging us in their own minds. If they don't act on that judgment in any harmful way, how can their judgmental thoughts hurt us? To deny, at least sometimes, the ego's fundamental demand for safety in all circumstances is to say yes to life, to let life ravish us. While this may seem hedonistic, Woodman actually describes it as being spiritually chaste, being clean of ego desire. 
This reminds me of a certain approach to conducting psychotherapy wherein the therapist's intention is to be empty or to empty the vessel that is their own ego container so they can receive what the client brings in without defensiveness and so none of the client's stuff gets snagged on any of the therapist's stuff in the form of countertransference. Instead, the client's stuff can just pass through, be reflected, given space, and cared for. In the most recent Dharma talk at my Sangha, the teacher, herself a therapist, quoted another teacher who said that the difference between empathy and compassion is a difference of prepositions. When I empathize, I feel into you. When I practice compassion, I feel for you. It's much easier to do the latter when we're not caught up in doing the former, having our own experience of the other person's pain. From this perspective, when someone says, I'm an empath, they might as well be saying, I make everything about me. (laughs) That's harsh, and I admit it partly comes from my own annoyance with people who claim to be empaths, which itself comes from my envy of them, as I sometimes worry I'm not empathic enough. But surely all of us could stand to be more compassionate. And in many cases, the extent of a person's imperfection is analogous to how much compassion they require. And it's difficult to have compassion for someone's flaws if we A. refuse to look squarely at our own and or B. exaggerate our own to the point of self-centered self-loathing, seeing our flaws as a reason to hate ourselves rather than give ourselves love. We must therefore get on more intimate terms with our own imperfections, or what Woodman calls our darkness. She also calls it our evil, which strikes me as overly dramatic. But whatever you call it, The bottom line is that if we expect ourselves to be free of flaws, we will, at least on some level, expect the same of others, and we will judge them if they don't live up to those expectations. In many ways, our society is more judgmental than ever before, and I think that phenomenon largely has to do with the lack of stillness and silence in our lives, which is required, I think, if we're to truly know ourselves. Sure, we come to know ourselves better through action too, but if we never have time to process our life of doing, we become unskilled at simply being. Masculine standards of perfection deprive a person, as Woodman says, of time for a leisurely stroll in the woods, of a long cup of tea with her husband, of unplanned hours with her children. Organization and efficiency become gods. Periods of meditative silence are rare or non-existent. The more refined the masculine principle becomes, the more it devastates the feminine. At this point in the radio version, I played a song called Origami by Ani DeFranco, which really turns on their heads our stereotype notions of male and female. Have you ever heard anyone describe men as being delicate origami creatures who need women to unfold them and hold them when they cry? And she describes herself as an all-powerful Amazon warrior who cannot possibly have a need in this world. So these are very masculine traits, or rather unconsciously masculine. But then she's also embodying the unconscious feminine by always being available for the man to come to her for sweet sweetness. She is a never-ending vending machine who never needs to be alone or be her own person. 
This is not what Marion Woodman would call being spiritually chaste or ego-sacrificing, but being self-sacrificing for the sake of another who constantly needs to be saved, who needs his queen. Ani is tired of being the savior. In my favorite line of the song, and the one that epitomizes the conscious feminine, she says, Long time love's got to breathe. You've got to let it ebb and flow. If you want a ball to bounce, you've got to let it go. As I mentioned earlier, I decided to revisit Addiction to Perfection because the podcast version of the first episode I did on it is the most downloaded episode I've made by a long shot. So it seems like listeners are really interested in the modern drive toward perfection. And I want to give them more of what they're interested in. And I wonder how many of them have been surprised to discover that, at least according to Woodman, perfection is synonymous with the masculine power principle. It is the man in the Ani DeFranco song I just played who cannot relinquish control for long enough to let a ball go so that it can bounce, who cannot let love ebb and flow, as all things must inherently do, and who therefore needs constant saving, is therefore a delicate origami creature. It's perhaps counterintuitive at first to think that a controlling person would be delicate in this way, but on deeper reflection it makes sense. A person is controlling because they don't trust that they can handle anything uncalled for, unplanned, or out of the ordinary routine. Routine is good to an extent, but we take it too far in this society. We start imposing overly strict routines on our children at a very young age by forcing them into classrooms and only giving them 20 minutes of recess a day and making them learn things they might not be interested in. We do not let the conscious feminine part of our children naturally develop. Instead, we suppress it in favor of the masculine. Woodman would say that our routinized way of life is our attempt to concretize our unconscious inner ideal, and by doing so, quote, we kill our imagination. We are left holding life in our own rigid molds. To be free is to break the stone images and allow life and love to flow. This allowing is inherently imperfect in that it is never completely done. And that is the literal definition of the word perfect. The prefix per means through, completely. And the effect part of the word comes from the Latin facere, to do. So if something is perfect, it is done completely and all the way through. This is a concept we can apply to stone images, but not to human beings. If we are really living, we're never completely done or finished. We're always changing, growing, learning, always works in progress, but never progressing toward any final ideal, never identifying with a static monolith, but always with a fluid process. That's pretty abstract, I know, but as Woodman says, these profounder aspects of life cannot be fully conveyed in words. They must be experienced. Only you can know what you're capable of doing to bring more of the conscious feminine into your life. But in my understanding, the key is to express your emotions more often and more authentically and to put fewer restrictions on yourself when it isn't totally irresponsible to do so and experience more of life and face more of your fears. It's okay to say you're scared. In fact, it's essential. When we take the masculine approach of suppressing certain emotions, we really only give those emotions more power. We have to let them come through us and out of us through words, tears, screams, laughter, and simply moving our bodies in different ways. 
This is also how we take responsibility for our bodies and for who we are when we're not so busy doing stuff. That responsibility taking is how Woodman defines femininity. I still feel like I've just scratched the surface of what the book Addiction to Perfection has to offer, despite having now done two episodes on it, but I will just have to be okay with that particular incompleteness or imperfection. I'm Sarah B, and I thank you for listening today. I hope you'll join me for the next installment of Time and Other Thieves, when I'll explore some of the ideas presented in the 1992 book, The Spirituality of Imperfection, Storytelling and the Search for Meaning. Published ten years after Addiction to Perfection, it struck me as a fitting text to help me dive more deeply into the concepts that Marian Woodman so astutely explicates, and indeed she is quoted in that book at least once. Until then, take care.